0: going Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is
1: Mike Butterworth from the University of Texas at Austin.
0: and Prof B, it's a fantastic joy to see you. It's a long time since we actually spoke, although we correspond fairly often over different projects. indeed. And you know I'm a big fan of your work, so this is a terrific opportunity for me. And as I was saying to you before we started recording, there's a basic way I like to begin these things, which is to ask, what is it, Mike, that's occupying your thoughts at the moment? What's troubling you? What's giving you pleasure? What are you concerned with? What are you working on? That kind of introductory gambit.
1: You bet. Well, well, thanks for the invitation, Toby, and and let me uh, reciprocate and and note that not only am I a fan of your work, but your your work was so central to the things that i was trying to do when i first got started especially coming from communication studies there were not a lot of people who were treating sport as a serious object of inquiry and so the turn to media and cultural studies was was really pivotal and uh, so anyway uh feeling is mutual and i, I appreciate uh, the kind words uh i'm thinking about all kinds of things i mean i think that's you know one of the the things about the academic life is that our our brains move Uh, back and forth between all of the things happening in the world and the rhythms of the semester. We've just finished our fall semester at UT Austin, and so that gives me a little bit of of space. But honestly, the thing that is capturing my attention at the moment is getting caught up in the excitement of football, college football uh, uh, on the UT campus. And uh, of course, intercollegiate football in the U.S. has such a big uh, influence on the sports landscape and on university climates. And uh, of course, it, it puts me in a position to have to uh, reconcile my own fandom with my uh, critical sensibilities. And it's very easy to get caught up. In the excitement uh, of being one of the last four teams uh, and having the potential of being able to win a national championship and University of Texas volleyball just won a national championship going back to back. And so there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm about what's happening on campus, uh, which is, of course, always an interesting thing to work with or wrestle with because there are all sorts of other things happening on campus. And in the state of Texas in terms of legislation that's uh you know, an effort to curtail academic freedom and, and expression and uh tensions about what that might mean. So I I suppose as good a place as any to start is is sort of living in both of those spaces at the same time, which I think we, yeah. we do as sports scholars.
0: So. No, beautifully put, and especially because there's a fanboy element and fangirl yeah. element. That stalks sports studies in the same way it stalks sports journalism, I think. But on the, on the college issue, because a lot of listeners won't be from the US, I just recently recorded an episode with Tom Oates and, yeah. and that was great because he was able to explain a bit of this to people. But maybe you could help in explaining what it means, what college sports can mean, because there are, millions of Americans who actually couldn't give a toss about pro sports and are absolute college sports fanatics. And some of them are in small market areas where, because of the literal audience numbers, basically there isn't sufficient demand in media terms to produce big contracts. And so, you know, your college team is the one you follow. But some you know think of people following ucla sports or usc sports university of california los angeles university of spoiled children uh, sorry university of southern california in la they've got plenty of pro sports but they're not interested many people they're interested in college sports what makes that such a big deal
1: there's a long history to that uh, and the development of college athletics. And, And we obviously do things differently in the U.S. in all kinds of ways, but definitely when it comes to the intersection of higher education and sports, you know, it's It's clear that uh, from the student experience and the experience of people who are on campus, that athletics can generate a kind of enthusiasm and a sense of community that few things are able to replicate. And so the scale of it is exciting. Uh, The idea that you're connected to people across, you know, we have 40,000 undergraduates and well over 50,000 students on this campus alone. Uh, and all of a sudden you feel that you have some kind of common cause, and then you have that ca- common cause with the hundreds of, uh, and thousands of alumni that you might know or interact with. So there are reasons why that enthusiasm makes a great deal of sense. And, and clearly, be given, given the media spectacle of college sports, there's so much positive energy that comes from being in the spotlight. And so uh it. It's fun. I mean, uh, uh, the, you know, you there are all kinds of ways of being able to think about sports uh, mm. as a, as an academic site. Uh, and I do think we sometimes lose sight of the fact that it is it is fun. Uh, mm. It's fun to watch people perform at this level. Uh, and it's it's fun to feel like you're connected to it, even if you're not the one who's actually on the field or the court.
0: Right. right. Um, but and of course, Austin is a bit different from. For example, pure, in a college towns in Indiana or Iowa or Illinois. Think of somewhere like Champaign-Urbana because Austin is a metropolis in, in Texas terms as the capital of the state and also, of course, one of the music capitals of the world. So it has a, 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 an identity as a very sophisticated city that is separate from the college in ways that are quite unusual in smaller metropolitan uh, areas of the U.S., no?
1: Yeah, I think that that's a really important distinction with college sports and and sort of implied in your original question about uh, the distinction between fandom for college and and professional sports. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did my PhD at Indiana University in Bloomington, which is one of those college towns that you're describing, and, and clearly Austin is different. You know, Austin is a metropolis now, I think uh, a lot of people who have been here a long time still try to hold on to the sense that it's a it's a smaller city, you know, that, that it, they remember it having once been. Um, but, yeah, clearly there there's so much here. That's that speaks to your point about Los Angeles. You could be distracted by a, a thousand things before you decide to pay attention to the mm-hmm. Los Angeles Chargers, which is exactly what's happening to uh, the Los <laughs> Angeles Chargers but, uh, as, a, as one of those examples. But I think, you know, if you look at places like uh, Nebraska or, or Alabama, uh, places that do not have a major league level professional franchise, the college sports landscape becomes that Lincoln, Nebraska becomes uh, uh, that much larger of a city or Tuscaloosa, Alabama, that much larger of a city on game day. And it is it is something that brings people into the fold, whether they have a connection to the university or not. And that is interesting with college sports, is you would think that people would follow a team because they have a personal connection one way or another. And often it's the case that that just happens to be the state where they live and and they've grown up following that team and they live and die by it. So, uh, you know, fandom works in weird ways and it's totally irrational when we really stop and think about it. Uh, but uh, it's one of those things that creates a sense of community that is hard to find in any other institution.
0: Now, one of the things that governs this is the National Collegiate Athletic Association, NCAA or NC2A, and universities pay a fair bit to be in the different levels of that, and if you're a Division I college, there can be big profits that come from that. And in many public universities, the college football coach owns more than any other public servant in the state. But despite that fact, and despite the fact that there are many alumni who give money, and not just alumni, but football fans especially, but also basketball fans, because of the college team, for many universities, it costs more than it brings in And there have been huge controversies over many years about the status of college athletes, both in terms of how serious their education is treated by the school and in terms of their exploitation. And now, of course, we're looking at moving towards a more directly monetary relationship between college athletes and the teams they play for. So what's your view on all of that, the kind of critique of college sports that takes that form when there are, you know, when the UT system uh, suffers hugely in terms of diminishing state support for all kinds of aspects.
1: Yeah, it, it, it really depends very much on where you are. And so I'll start by acknowledging that being at the University of Texas at Austin is different than being at a lot of other public universities. Uh, in terms of our, our financial resources, both in terms of, of you're absolutely right, state support has evaporated as it has across the country. Uh, but we're equipped to be able to offset that in some ways that a lot of uh, universities cannot. And especially that's true of smaller state universities, regional universities. And so I spent, I have an undergraduate master's degree from Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, and then was faculty at Bowling Green State and at Ohio University. All three of those institutions belong to the Mid-American Conference, the MAC, which is what's referred to as a mid-major conference. So they all play at Division One level uh, and at the highest level across the board in sports, but none of them are equipped to generate the kind of revenue that AUT can or Ohio State or some of these other programs are able to do. So there are only about of the I think there's roughly 120 programs that qualify in what the NCAA calls football bowl subdivision, and that's the highest category of competition. And because of course it's all filtered through uh, American football as the as the lens. And of those 120, roughly 20 to 25 might be profitable in a given year. So the overwhelming majority of programs do in fact lose money. And much of that loss is is built around the same thing that might be the gain in other places, and that means football. You've got 85 scholarships that go to football. You have immense equipment costs and travel costs and marketing costs. So if you're drawing 100,000 people every Saturday and you can sell the kind of merchandise and licensing that Michigan and uh, and Florida can do, then you're going to be in pretty good shape. Uh, but most programs cannot do that. And there's been a longstanding, you know, the, the dominant metaphor used in college sports and, and among university administrators is that athletics represents the front porch of the university. You know, suggesting that this is a home of some kind and what welcomes you in, what's the attractive face of the home, is the athletics program and there's obviously an element of truth to that because people who aren't connected to the university become interested, donors become interested, but much of the economy of that is self-circulating and so the the money is is staying within the athletic uh, uh component of the university. Um years ago in the 1980s when uh, Boston College quarterback Doug Flutie won the Heisman Trophy, and suddenly Boston College became this national program, Boston College saw an influx of, of uh, interest from students. So their uh, application rates went very went much higher. And so the perception was, oh, the, the ticket to generating interest among students is to have a, a successful athletics program. And that became known colloquially as the, the flutie factor. So the idea that if you could have this great run to the final four or a magical football season, then that would boost enrollments. And in a moment, and this goes, this is now four decades back. And over the course of those four decades, we've only seen more and more pressure on state universities to find revenue through tuition. And so uh, because of declining state support, We've become increasingly enrollment dependent. And so for institutions that do not have stable ceilings in terms of their enrollments, they're looking, obviously, for those opportunities to be able to to, to have more, more applications. So it becomes a bit of a cycle. A handful of places have done this very, very successfully. The University of Alabama has transformed itself as an institution, and you cannot pretend that football hasn't played a role in that but it is the exception, not the rule. Mm. So then you've got other places that are trying to follow that rule, but they just don't, sim- simply don't have the built-in advantages for college football yeah. that Alabama has.
0: And Doug Flutie was a romantic sort of everyman, yeah. working-class sort of white stiff uh, who suddenly got lucky and was never going to be a, a major NFL player. But he stood for something special for lots and lots of men, in particular. I suspect, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, clearly undersized and and not physically imposing in the way that we expect athletes to be. And I can confirm, as a Chicago Bears fan, a long suffering <laughs> Chicago Bears fan, that he was an unspectacular NFL quarterback. <laughs> uh, he had a knack for you know having stati- uh, statistically very poor performances and yet somehow pulling out a big play. Uh, which kind of added to the mystique. Um in any case, yeah, he was he was very easy to root for, especially as yeah. a collegiate athlete, because he fit the model of what we think college sports is at its best. Giving an opportunity to somebody uh who's playing for the love of the game and represents their institution uh wonderfully and all of that was a, a tailor-made uh narrative and then you know, the joke had long been that he won the Heisman basically because of a completed Hail Mary pass against yeah. the University of Miami. And, uh, of course, they were had become a dominant program by then. So, yeah, it fits into the underdog working class. I don't even yeah. I honestly I don't know if, if Doug Flutie was working class or not.
0: But I don't either. But, there. but he, he fit the image. Uh, yeah. The Hail Mary, we should say, is a bit like outside uh, American football taking a punt I see. You just get the ball the hell up the other end of the field, very, very hard up in the air, and hope some guy on your team gets it and scores. Right, right.
1: complete desperation play. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: And what about the the other issue I raised, uh, Mike, which is exploitation of student athletes, both in terms of the duty of care to young people uh, towards getting a degree, because most of them, I'm sorry, you know this better than I do, will never get a gig in the NFL, in Major League Baseball, in the NBA, in any of these things. The vast majority will not. Right. But that's the fantasy that many of them operate from, as may their families. And also this issue of whether they should get a cut of the pie when they're working, working for a program that brings in lots of money and doing it, in many cases, for free, other than in terms of getting you know, free tuition and college board.
1: It's it's uh fascinating to see that evolve. Uh you know, most recently the move toward what we refer to as name, image, and likeness or NIL uh rights uh, gives athletes the ability to earn income based mm. on their representation, which historically had been owned exclusively by the NCAA. Yep. Right. Um and so Assuming we have the latitude for a sort of random story, one of my favorite examples of of how this would work. So you you may remember the football player, uh, Tim Tebow, who was sort of a Doug uh, Flutie-esque NFL player in that he was overmatched, but but had been a massively successful college player and uh, also very, very well known because he was so public about his evangelical faith. And so when he was a college quarterback at the University of Florida, he was larger than life, uh, mm-hmm. winning the Heisman, winning national championships and, and being the face of the, of the team. So, uh, not too far from Gainesville, Florida, there was a minor league baseball team and base minor league teams love to run wacky promotions to try to get people to come to the ballpark and have some uh, free giveaway. And so, uh, they, wanted to have a, what would Tim Tebow do night? So clearly the idea was instead of what would Jesus do, we're going to take Tim Tebow, who's the next best thing. And we're going to say, what would Tim Tebow do? Uh, And then there was going to be a set of events uh, uh, that would um, highlight his faith and celebrate Tebow. They received a cease and desist letter, not from Tim Tebow, but from the university of Florida, Uh because university of Florida owned, the name image and likeness of mm-hmm. Tim Tebow. And so they, uh, they change it to what would TT do <laughs>
0: that,
1: <laughs> obvious what was happening. Uh, but the, in this particular context, what's remarkable to me about that is that the university was the one that intervened and and claimed mm-hmm. ownership. So I think it's been really important for athletes to be able to have that opportunity. I don't think there's any argument, uh. To be made that this hasn't been exploitative, you know, that athletes have uh, given their labor and their talent uh, to build an enterprise that has made people unbelievably wealthy uh, and historically has not necessarily made them wealthy. And you can acknowledge that there have been various ways that people have have you know, skirted the rules and, and athletes have certainly received benefits. And a full scholarship opportunity to a a major university is, in fact, a a reward that should be acknowledged. But so much of their labor is precarious. Uh, So little is guaranteed. And historically, you know, scholarships could be revoked. Um, You've got athletes who won't go pro, or if they do, they have very, very limited windows in which they'll compete. Something like the NFL is just a little over three years is the average length of of a a player's career. So we have a tendency, of course, to overrepresent the most extreme examples and the people who make all this money, uh, and that's, that's just not the case. What I think is particularly interesting about the current structure, though, is NIL is an important intervention on behalf of athletes, but it's also been really important for athletics administrations because it allows them to preserve the core category. That props up this whole structure of amateurism, and that category is the label "student athlete." And student athlete is is just accepted as the nomenclature. You know, people use that reference because we've heard it for decades at this point. Mm. And students often use it uh, as athletes, they, and they take a great deal of pride in that. And I don't, I don't want to uh, take away from that at all. Uh, I will unequivocally, uh, my my athletes are are among the most dedicated and disciplined students that I have. I know how hard they work, and their schedules are very, very demanding. But the category was a legal construction in the 1950s that was in response to a workers' compensation claim, and in because an athlete was injured on the field of play. And in order to prevent uh, or to to allow the university not to have to pay damages for workers' compensation, the NCAA invented the category student athlete because if they're students. Then they are not workers. I never knew and that. So which,
0: which is that, one of the. Ways, I mean that univ- private universities continue to try to destroy grad students' opportunities to organize industrially, based yeah. on the notion of oh, they're just studying, even though they teach for money and they do research for faculty for money.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's a similar logic for for yeah. sure. Um and uh you know, I, I should acknowledge that the the best uh discussion I've read about this is Taylor Branch's uh piece um on college athletics. I think it's now from twenty eleven in uh-huh. the Atlantic. And he eventually turned it into a full uh, book treatment, a short book. But, um, oh, really?
0: Okay. I don't know that. I'll have to look for it.
1: Thank you. Oh, it's it's excellent. Um, and, and Taylor Branch is, you know, one of our premier civil rights historians and, and bran- branched, no pun intended, into <laughs> the world of, of college sports. So I think that's, that would be the, the pillar that if that were to fall, that would dramatically change everything yeah. because, um, the, so far, even though athletes are now making hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, in some cases, through NIL, yeah. they're not receiving that directly from the university. Uh, those are all things that are coming from third-party uh, sources. Yeah, but
0: they're, they're allowed to do that, whereas once that would have meant not only would their scholarships have been revoked, but actually the NCAA would probably have said, you can never play again, right? Correct, yeah. 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 No, thank you very much for that, Mike. So... You mentioned your student-athletes. I think that was your expression. And you've also said to me that when you were a graduate student in communications, there wasn't a lot that for you to read about sports. Uh, sports in the U.S. had sports history. <laughs> Pardon me. And it had lots of kinesiology. At what angle should the foot come down to maximize the chance of hitting <laughs> the ball over the little dot? <laughs> right. Um, how many toes do you have to be able to raise on your left foot to suggest that your hockey injury has probably permanently affected your back, right? That sort of stuff, Uh, very dominant, very powerful, still very important. But now you run, uh, maybe uh, I'm not really in a position to do a ranking, but maybe the premier centre for the study of sports and communication. Sure, we'll take that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You may quote me, it'll really help. That's right. Maybe the premier sports communications center and degree program as well. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that, about what you do, but also about how that gets received on the one hand within sports studies and on the other within communication studies.
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting trajectory. Uh, So I I began my PhD program in 2002. Uh, I I had been tenured at a community college where I was teaching public speaking and had a, 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 the College of Lake County in North Suburban, Chicago was a lovely place. I was treated very well. I enjoyed it, Uh, but I knew that I didn't want to only teach public speaking. And I knew that I had some other things I was curious about, but I didn't have a vocabulary for. So. I found uh, at my program uh, in what was known as the Department of Communication and Culture at Indiana University. That, that program no longer exists, um, doesn't they, it?
0: That's where yeah, my- they,
1: it, it, it's a whole that that might be a, a podcast in of itself. But uh, they sort of splintered the different units that were within it. So my home discipline of rhetoric is now entirely housed within the English Department at Indiana and there's a a long standing english and rhetoric and composition tradition and then the rhetoric and speech tradition in communication studies so there's a theoretical overlap but a pedagogical and topical uh difference between those two traditions
0: wow okay so uh
1: in any case it was it was healthy while i was there and the faculty i didn't have anybody in in that faculty who studied sports but they were all very Supportive of the idea and recognized that sport had a, a significant role to play in the constitution of public culture. And our focus in that program was understanding the construction and the critique of, of public culture. So uh, I found immediate support, but in the discipline and communication studies in the US entails anything and everything <laughs> that might fall under a communication label. And so all of the media studies traditions would, would also be kind of merged together and and every university here organizes things quite differently, but rhetorical studies is a very North American subfield and is housed in comm studies. So I I'm trained in rhetoric, uh, which in Europe, for example, is going to be found probably more often in a philosophy Mm -hmm. unit than it would be in in communication, which tends to be much more media focused. Um, but the places where i could find available work knowing that i wanted to study the re- the relationship between politics and sports was cultural studies sociology uh and and media so um well, that's a long way of saying in 2002 the job i have now didn't exist and i had absolutely no conception that it ever could Exist. You know, my hope was to be a rhetorical scholar at a place that would allow me to use sports as a way of understanding uh, democratic culture. So I, th- I think of myself as a rhetorician who studies democracy, who uses sports to get at that. That's all I thought I wanted. But it, it happened at the right time. So obviously, I, I worked hard to try to develop a certain expertise and I was able to publish early enough work to generate a specific conversation around sports and politics, especially nationalism and militarism, and uh, that was very focused on the context of the time, which was post 9-11, War on Terror. Uh, There obviously was, there were other people doing that work in cultural studies and media studies, et cetera, Uh, but in in rhetoric, that that wasn't the case. So I had a space that I could carve out um, and, and was able to do that. But at the same time, there were a number of other scholars in North America that started to, to recognize that sport could be an organizing feature. And so in 2002, there was an initial summit of a group of eight scholars that I was not part of at that point uh, that decided to start meeting every now and again. And that led to what we eventually created as the International Association for Communication and Sport um, and then through the 2000s and 2010s, we had special issues. We had academic organizations creating, uh, divisions and interest groups beginning with IAMCR. Uh, and then we started to, to see a lot more opportunity on campuses to develop programs and eventually institutes and centers. So, uh, I happen to have the career path between the scholarship and some administrative opportunities that, put me in a position to take the role when, when it uh, uh, it was offered to me in 2017. And so at the Center for Sports Communication and Media at UT Austin, our, our objective is to, to think holistically about uh, communication and media uh, and its relationship to sports. Uh, that does focus a, a good deal of attention on the student experience and their goals in terms of their careers, So we focus a lot on journalism and broadcasting, media production, advertising, all of the industry and professional aspects. But we try very hard to make sure that that's complemented by uh, a critical and historical attention to what Mm -hmm. sports means, uh, why it's symbolically important, um, how that has evolved, the kinds of questions we want students to be able to, uh, to ask and answer, so the idea being um, there's a recognition that you can learn how to edit tape uh, and film and storyboard in a lot of places, but we want our students to be able to leverage the resources of UT and Austin, but then have a critical capacity to make better, more creative and more ethical decisions when they're doing that creative work. Uh, and then we complement that with uh, a number of programs on campus and invited lectures. And, and uh, we uh, we run uh, or publish an annual report called the Politics and Sports Media Report to try to identify trends in sports media in the U.S. primarily uh, and just try to be engaged as, as possible uh, with the things that are happening across the spectrum uh, in sports. So that's a That's a, a a long answer in some ways, but still a kind of a brief overview of what we do. No I appreciate
0: it and I want to get on we're in the second half of our conversation. I want to get on to talk about your publications in in a moment, but a couple of things. I teach in a journalism department here in Madrid, and all the boys want to work for Real Madrid. And when I have given guest appearances or made guest appearances in Barcelona, they all want to teach, they want to work for Barca. And there might be 350 of them in the major, but you know, they're all going to get jobs with the football team.
1: Yeah.
0: One of the things that signifies, apart from the fact these are working class, lower middle class profile students, even though they're at famous schools, because the ruling class only goes to private schools in Spain, pretty much. And so they don't have the cultural capital to look at the data on employment for themselves. But one of the things that signifies is the shifting relations between public relations or its current euphemism, strategic communication and journalism. And if you look in the U S at what the Bureau of labor statistics offers, it's not only showing that there are many more jobs in PR than in journalism, but you get a lot more money as a salary and they project this into the future as a a trend that is really developing. And one of the other issues related to that that I'd like you to reflect on. So please reflect on that, but also reflect on the following. There is some research, as you know, that suggests that, and not just in the the Anglo world, but in Spain, in Germany, in France, sports journalists who used to be people who could be very influential in the careers of athletes
1: Mm.
0: and the success of teams, are now cut off from direct access to those athletes and those teams and are fed bullshit (laughs) by the clubs, have to make do with social media postings by players who've never read, let alone written the postings, and the whole PR machine of the sports industry. So I wonder if you could comment on those two things. A, the trend towards getting jobs in PR rather than in, in what we might think of as journalism and b this question of even if you are a sports journalist becoming adjunctive to the to the industry that you're meant to be certainly reporting on and explaining but also researching and potentially criticizing
1: yeah i'm going to i'm going to add one other aspect to that <laughs> as well which is the increasingly blurred line between reporting and editorializing or the difference between being a journalist and being a, a personality. Um, so I guess I, I, I'll start with that. I, yeah, uh, sure. Since I, I mentioned that, you know, uh, in the U.S., the biggest sports media entity still is ESPN, although its influence is is evolving, if not declining. And over the last several years, they've had multiple rounds of layoffs, and they've and the people they've laid off have been traditional. Journalists, reporters, investigative reporters. They still employ some outstanding writers and, and the people, uh, who are there are, are very, very talented. But increasingly they've invested their resources in terms of big dollars in personalities. So people like Stephen A. Smith and Pat McAfee, uh, who is a, a recently ascendant star for ESPN, a former punter for, uh, in the NFL, um, whose persona is, uh, essentially fraternity brother on a podcast which happens to have a camera on it and um you know and we're talking now i think somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 17 million dollars annually that espn's investing there and, and so smith the,
0: is is a very smart guy but he's shouty he's just there to shout at you
1: yeah yeah it's and that's not new, clearly, in the sports media ecosystem where we've got manufactured debate and and uh we're going to find the hot button issue to to make sure that we can we can get as many callers on the radio show or, or whatever it, it may be. So it continues to evolve in that respect. And we've been dealing with an aspect of this for some time. But the the existential threat to a network like ESPN is the 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 way that people have shifted their viewing habits, yeah. uh, the opportunity to stream and and to to potentially create a sele- a curated set of networks or or streaming platforms that may or may not include ESPN, and and so they've really had to shift their their model. So. But what has happened there, and this happened in newspapers as well, and, and obviously newspapers are under a significant existential threat, um, is the line between being able to say, this is reported, this is an article that is based on, on the due diligence of journalistic fact-finding and uh, verifying sources, versus this is my hot take, and uh, increasingly students are drawn to the hot the hot take. They want to be commentators, they want to be influencers, and this all overlaps with the emergence of social media as well. So that's a, a major um, challenge. And then it gets complicated by the degree to which sports media uh, enterprises and the, the teams that function within it have sought to take control over narratives in particular ways so on the one hand athletes uh in in rare spaces the the athletes who have real influence have been able to seize almost complete control over the way their stories are presented and told um and you think of of the world's biggest footballers or or lebron james or a serena williams athletes of that caliber they get to play by their own rules uh whereas rank-and-file athletes are, are adhering to social media policies and letting the PR uh, person take care of it. But you also see so much more uh, internal media relations that looks like journalism. It's formatted like journalism, but it's it's just simply PR on behalf of the organization. And so students are drawn to that and often struggle to to distinguish between them. They like the idea of writing for a team, Wait, I, I could potentially write for my favorite team or in my favorite sport. That's pretty cool. But they're and they're using all of the uh, the visible signs of journalistic practice, but they're not necessarily using the critical and, and investigative yeah, things right. that are there. So it it continues to evolve, and, and the industry is just uh, it's so big and continues to grow that it's it's difficult to to see that changing too much.
0: And of course, in a way, there's a long history of this in the U.S., unlike in many other countries. You get you always had AM stations that were, you know, the Dodgers station and the announcer calling the Dodgers games, Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, originally Brooklyn Dodgers. But after the late 50s, moved to L.A. when the coaxial Cable made it possible for pro sports to exist west of the Rockies. You know, there, there will be a television station, there will be a radio station that is the home station of a club, even though it is in fact technically perhaps independent of that club. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the club will provide the play by play people or the color commentary people. And you know, if you tune into that, you'll always get the Yankees or you'll always get the Dodgers <clears throat> in baseball. And Although the commentator will be even-handed, he or she, normally he historically, will be using inside knowledge about a particular team. So in a sense, there's been a tendency in that direction that's very longstanding.
1: Well, baseball is a specific example in that case because um, baseball's popularity, you know, there, there's a lot of hand-wringing about whether or not baseball has completely lost uh, its way it's clearly no longer the most popular sport in the United States, but sometimes the the narrative about it being irrelevant gets overstated because baseball's popularity is much more connected to its regional markets than as a national sport. So yeah. yep. the NFL is the national sport. And on Sunday, it's, it's the major networks that are covering those games. Whereas on, you know, you've got 162 games instead of 17 over the course of a season and those games are covered by a regional sports network uh, or a, a, a team-owned network, and so your fan base is more localized, um, and and that's been the case for uh, for some time. In some cases, you know, if you the YES Network for the Yankees, NESN for for Boston. Um, You talk about uh, having a a home network. You know, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. There are millions of Cubs fans in the United States because they had access to the TV channel WGM, which was a syndicated cable network that was the home of the radio and TV home of the Cubs for decades. And just uh, four or five, I actually don't remember now, a few years ago, that relationship came to a a complete end. The Cubs now broadcast everything on marquee network on television, and they shifted to a different local station for the radio broadcast. And you think about that. uh, Yeah, it comes back. I, I mentioned, you know, one of the things that interests me about sports is the sense of community to the extent that that's possible, that sports can create that. And when you have a network that for decades has been the anchor for the relationship between the fans and the organization. That network is a really integral part of that that community, and that that continues to change uh, as, as well, especially in in baseball.
0: And I guess Atlanta became a national team, yeah, uh, because TBS, same thing uh, exactly, was a a national cable station.
1: Yeah, as a kid in the nineteen seventies, I had uh I could watch Cubs and Braves games in California. I grew up mostly in California, and uh my folks were from Chicago, so so the Cubs games meant something to me, but the the Braves games didn't. But but there they were. Uh and yeah. and they were available to to millions because so of that.
0: Where where in California did you live, Mike?
1: Uh various places. Um I spent a couple of years in Sacramento, uh in one year stints at different times, and then Four years in a little tiny town called Kalinga in the middle of the state Uh, via Fresno and Visalia would be Mm -hmm. your your closest points Mm -hmm. of reference. And then uh, four years in Ukiah, which is two hours north of San Francisco in Mendocino County.
0: Wow, that's a great varied background. Speaking of varied backgrounds, your publications cover a host of sins, crimes, benefits and donations, and they include you know, a wonderful co-authored textbook that's really important and various edited collections. But I wondered if before we speak about them, and we've got about 15 minutes to go, we could talk about your monograph, which is about baseball, your your first big research book publication, and is a landmark in the field. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a
1: product of my dissertation. Um, and Actually has its origins in the very first graduate seminar that I took at Indiana. So I, I knew before 9-11 happened that I wanted to go back to get my PhD. I searched for PhD programs in the fall immediately after the 9-11 attacks. And then the following fall was my first fall on campus at Indiana. So, um, August of 2002. I mention that because, like so many others, everything that I was thinking about as an academic or an aspiring academic at that point was filtered through what had happened on 9-11 and the the war on terror. And the first grad seminar I took was with Bob Ivey, who is uh, well, well well-known in rhetorical studies as arguably the first scholar to really define uh, the genre of war rhetoric. And uh, Bob was writing uh, vigorously about Uh, the U.S. response to 9-11. And I took a seminar with him called uh, Rhetorical Critiques of the War on Terror and asked him if it would be okay for me to write about the rituals that were happening in baseball stadiums when we resumed play after 9-11. And he absolutely was supportive of it. Bob ended up being my advisor, and I, I couldn't have been more grateful for his his guidance and wisdom along the way. Um, and so the, the basic premise there was that when baseball resumed, and it was the first major sport in the United States to resume play six days after 9-11, it came back with these elaborate ceremonies designed for people to mourn together. And uh, because it was relatively fresh and there wasn't an established pattern of how these things worked, uh, it was pretty raw, and and I thought really quite moving. I was really struck by um, what it meant for people to have to gather with twenty or thirty thousand others to be able to to be together after that kind of, of of painful event. I think that was really really meaningful, and I was also struck by how quickly that transformed from something that I thought was was genuine and necessary to an opportunity to pound the drum for war. And uh, it shifted so quickly from an, a ritual of mourning to a ritual of nationalism, uh, became increasingly belligerent and muscular and militant. And um, and so that shaped the, the rest of my studies at, at Indiana. And eventually... Uh, became the dissertation. Um, obviously, I significantly revised it for the book. I added a chapter about the World Baseball Classic, which debuted in 2006, and so I I wasn't able to account for that in my dissertation. But the idea was to try to look for different ways that um, purity was being featured as a rhetorical resource and and something that we could access through baseball that would allow for an American renewal or reset uh, resurgence of. Our sense of innocence and purity. And that's a a mythic foundation in the United States in terms of our identity that uh, even when we do things uh, wrong, we do them for the right reasons because we are inherently a divine exceptionalist experiment. And uh, so there were various ways that baseball, although it wasn't the most popular sport by a long shot um, by that that time period, why baseball was able to, to rehearse those rituals of purity in in other in ways that that stood out from other sports and relied heavily on its mythic history. Uh, and so yeah, it kind of went from there.
0: Yeah, it's it's terrific work. And it's really true because one of the things about baseball is that it doesn't actually cost that much to go in the bleachers and watch a major league team. An NFL ticket is not <laughs> the working stiff. It's just, no, and
1: you know, uh, you're right. If if you're if you're on your own and you want to get a, a cheap seat to a baseball game, it can be relatively affordable. Um, you know, the average experience, game day experience for baseball has exploded in terms of cost as well, and especially given the number of dates. You know, you've got only eight or nine home dates for football. You've got eighty one for baseball. So relative to its um, the amount of time on the calendar, it's actually not a very good value. But um it it is much more accessible. It remains more accessible than, than an NFL game, which is is uh really exorbitant.
0: And there are these wonderful evocative stadia like uh Wrigley Field. Yeah. For the Cubbies. Uh Dodger Stadium is fantastic also. Oh it's wonderful. And I've never been to um, see the Red Sox but I gather it's a pretty special place as well.
1: Yeah I've only been to Boston at times when I have not been in town so I've been outside the <laughs> Fenway Park but uh, but haven't been in it. I got to my first Dodgers game uh, in the summer of 2022 which is really? a long it's... long time to get to a Dodgers game and it was every everything I thought it would be yeah, right? yeah. including the traffic yeah
0: yeah right <laughs> well I've got to tell you my my cubby story which won't surprise you and this is Before they finally won the World Series, there was a curse on the Cubbies, like there was a a curse on the Red Sox that meant that for a long time they didn't have a great deal of success. I went to see them play the Dodgers in about 1996 or 7. And in about the bottom of the 5th, the Cubbies were up 4-2, to and everybody got up and left, including the folks I was there with. And I said, why are we all leaving? They said, oh, there's no point. We're going to lose... Um, probably five, four. So we've got the good bit done. Let's just leave. So I thought this is extremely weird. We got on the, the subway, the metro, and by the time we got home, that was exactly what had happened.
1: <laughs> it's, uh, it's a familiar tale. <laughs> it, winning in 2016 was oh. indescribable. You know, that, that long a period of, a to- of time and uh and i'll i'll use this just to to kind of respond to your very initial question you know what are what are the things that i'm thinking about you know i've talked about sports and community but i get very worried about this overemphasis on unity the idea that sports can somehow bring yeah. us together uh and and solve away all of these these larger problems but those moments of of unity or moments of community i think is the better term are are amazing when they happen And when you've got a fan base that hasn't won in 108 years and you have generations in families that have been connected to this team for better or for worse, the uh, emotional outpouring for people when that team won in 2016 is as earnest and sincere as anything uh, you'll find. And so for all of the flaws with sports and all of its limits in terms of not being able to create actual national unity – uh, it does have these remarkable moments. And, and the stories out of Chicago were just incredible.
0: You know, when uh, when my marriage was breaking up, it was when Leicester City won the Premier League. I was born in Leicester. And we were, we were a crap team forever, regularly relegated. As you know, unlike socialism for billionaires, which is what U.S. pro sports is, there's actual real capitalism applying in <laughs> in English sports. And no one thought we could ever win. We didn't have all this incredible money, billions. You know, Fenway Sports Group owns Liverpool Football Club, for example, lots of US and uh Saudi Arabian or not Saudi Arabian, sorry, Arab World money owning up us. We were owned by, you know, totally corrupt people who run duty-free in Bangkok and other Southeast Asian airports, but we didn't have that kind of money. So when we won, uh the probability was literally less than elvis still being alive <laughs> this was calculated that's a that's a great benchmark it is a benchmark uh so it was beyond even the cubbies because the cubbies have had great players and have made the playoffs and all the rest of it but uh no i know what you mean and it meant a great deal um so mike i've i've got one more question for you and then I'd like to throw it to you to add or subtract anything from what we've been discussing. There may be things we've glossed over that you'd like to address or whatever. So my my last question is, in terms of your co-authored sort of introductory sports and communication book with two other folks, and your really also pathbreaking editor collections, what were you trying? What are you trying to do? With these interventions,
1: it's, a, it's funny. The the uh, handbook of communication in sport. I had no ambition uh, or initiative to do. It was presented to me, and I thought, I'm not honestly. I wasn't sure we needed another handbook, um, <laughs> and I'm still not sure if we needed another handbook. But I. So I spend, I, so I, I, thinking about that does lead to an answer to your, your question. Um, I spend my time in two worlds, one in rhetorical studies and one in what we might call communication and sport or sport communication. And rhetorical studies still harbors some skepticism about sport. I don't ever get outright hostility, but I, you know, it's, it's just something that, that folks in the field don't seek out. We tend to f- focus on politics in the proper sense and presidents and elections. And then when we do focus on popular culture, it tends to be with a more of an, an, obviously aesthetic angle, film, TV, music to a degree. And so, and this is not a unique thing to rhetorical studies, I realize, but we, we certainly perform it. Um, meanwhile, sport communication, which has been, uh, you know, Driven largely by legacy media studies and now new media studies, methodologically operates primarily within mass common and media. Yeah, is a little nervous about rhetoric. Folks aren't quite sure what it is as a field, they're not quite sure how to process the vocabulary. So, one of my goals is to try to get those two communities to, to talk to each other a little yep. bit more. Yeah, and then that's consistent with larger sense of, okay, what, what do we do to grow this thing called sport communication? So, you know, I, I was the founding executive director of IACS. Uh, I've been on the leadership of uh, the common sport division for NCA, National Communication Association, uh, wrapping up a, a, a two-year term as the chair for the International Communication Association's sport communication interest group. Uh, so, the, and then with the textbook, all of that Mm-hmm. Is together an effort to say what does this add up to?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, many mm-hmm. of
1: us are studying sports are interested in sports, and we come from these different traditions in communication and media. But what what unites that? What are our shared uh, points of entry? What distinguishes us from, say, sociology, which has a far uh, you know has a big head start on us from a disciplinary standpoint? Um, and part of that then is to with the handbook in particular. Uh, one of my goals was, and the reason why it's organized the way it is, most handbooks and most uh, discussions of sport will start with media for obvious reasons. Um, not only is that where most of the work is, but everything we know about sports, we we mediate. But I started with what I might think of as more of a communication studies in a North American sense, tradition, so that I could orient readers to interpersonal communication, organizational communication, these other areas of the field that often are left out of our larger conversations. And so that is a major goal, is to try to define what does it mean to study sport as a rhetorical phenomenon? How do we unite some of these disparate traditions? And what can we do to grow areas of the subfield that really need that? We have very, very few people in those areas I just mentioned, and I'd love to see more growth there.
0: Fantastic, thank you, Mike. So, can I ask whether there are things that we haven't addressed that you'd like us to consider as a last effort?
1: I mean, we got we, all... before
0: you you lie back, turn around, look at your picture of Muhammad Ali looking at Sonny Liston, maybe on the floor. Is it?
1: Yeah, it's the it's the iconic photo of of him, you know, brooding over the the fallen Liston um, that. Uh, has to be one of the two or three most famous sports photos in, in U S history. Uh, put that next to the image of John Carlos and Tommy Smith with the raised fists on the Olympic podium. Yeah. Um, what else? I mean, gosh, Toby, we talk about so many things right yeah. there. It's one of the things about doing this kind of work. And I know your work has expanded well beyond just sports. Um, but it's one of those areas where if you think you're going to get bored or that there won't be, things to animate your thinking um, you're disavowed of that pretty quickly because there, there's always so much that's happening. Um, so, you know, I, I, the, that theme uh, you know, one of the things you had asked me about early on were, you know, what am I working on? Most of the projects that I'm focused on at the moment have some sort of connection to this idea of trying to make sense of unity and its capacities and limits mm. in sports. Mm. To what extent can sports really bring us together the way that we say it, that it can? So a lot of that is connected to memory work and uh, memory studies has exploded across the humanities yeah. and social sciences. I'm uh, I, I'm interested in, in that growth and I'm interested in the way that we take sports memories and use them to serve contemporary purposes. So one of the projects I'm working on with a graduate student, is about uh, a video the NFL produced uh, on the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, and it and it's narrated by actor Steve Buscemi, and it talks about not getting back to 9/11, but getting back to 9/12, meaning if we could just get back to the day after when we were all united, we were all together, then everything would be okay, and and the images are juxtaposed uh, between. Uh, The images of 9-11, but also with contemporary images of strife, Black Lives Matter protests, um, COVID mask uh, policies, the things that allegedly disunify us are now the reason why we need to return to that memory. And I find that really troubling because it's really persuasive.
0: And yeah. uh, sports
1: audiences respond to it. very. They hard love hard. it. Just a, a,
0: a little footnote for people who may only know Steve Buscemi as a really great quasi actor. He was also a firefighter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's why he was the person who did the narration.
0: Uh, so it's um, really yeah. point in that context. Yeah. It,
1: it, it, it makes for, there are a lot of interesting layers there. Um, the, the big project that I've been working on for, for several years and am hoping will will come to a conclusion soon, is a book-length project on uh, memorialization of the 1972 Munich massacre and a new memorial that was built in Olympia Park in in Munich in 2017. And that's taken on, you know, continues to take on different layers of meaning. The, The resurgence of the conflict between Israel and Palestine gives that even additional depth.
0: Meaning, yeah.
1: The book is not about that conflict, but it obviously has to attend to that. In, in some I can
0: still remember as a teenager, Mike, uh, cheering on when Avery Brundage said the games must go on, not realizing he was essentially a Nazi.
1: Brundage is, I mean, when you talk about the history of uh, figures in sports who have shaped our understanding and have done so in some fairly nefarious ways, uh, Brundage is a really good place to start. Yeah.
0: Well, there's a whole group of those good old boys running so many international activities. Anyway, uh, I want to extract two promises from you if I can, Mike. Sure. The first is that you personally will come back to the pod, and I hope you'll do that. Maybe when you finish this project, which sounds amazing, the one about Munich 72.
1: I I would love to. That'd be an excellent incentive for for finally getting done. (laughs) That's
0: right. It's all you need. So the second (laughs) one is to see whether, and I've asked this of three or four people now, you might consider organizing a roundtable for the pod that we would record on Zoom, maybe with some of your colleagues uh, who work like you on communications and sports. And they might be doctoral students or professors, whatever, and they could be at UT Austin or they might be in other places where we could talk about maybe a particular theme that would be of your choice. Do you know what I mean? Sure,
1: sure. I'd I'd certainly be willing to
0: explore that. That'd be great because it it occurs to me that, you know, what I've been focused on when I started this series in 2010 and kept going with it until 2015-16 was individual discussions because the technology wasn't there (laughs) to do it virtually. And the technology wasn't really there for all sorts of things. Now it's much easier to do this in the way we're doing it now. And so when I I did a few roundtable things, but actually roundtable things can work better when they're virtual. Ironically.
1: Yeah, yeah, and obviously when you're you're talking about trying to assemble people from multiple time zones and regions of the world, it, it makes a it's a game changer in that respect. Exactly,
0: and you might want to use your IMCR context or ICA context. Well there might be Austin contacts, right? I mean, wh- whatever seems good to you. Of course, for me it's great because I'm several hours ahead of you, so I'm having my glass of wine while we're I noticed that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sort of jealous, yeah. <laughs> so, um many thanks Mike. Uh I'm it was fantastic as always to get your thoughts, to learn from you and uh I really appreciate your time.
1: Well, uh, uh back to you. I really appreciate the invitation in the first place and um not not just to to say it to say it. I mean, your your work was one of those uh, key moments of discovery for me as a graduate student, and and a recognition that this was work that could be done. And so, uh, it's great to be able to chat with you in this capacity. That's for sure. Thanks a lot, Mike.